Alright, so hello everyone and welcome back to another episode here on the Sorted Skeptics, where today we're going to be talking a little bit about the difference between freedom and tyranny, and what we can do about it. Are you all set to go, Tim? Let's do it. Alright, so first up, it's probably a good idea to actually discuss what it is tyranny is. So you want to lead us off here, Tim? What is tyranny? Sure. It's an arbitrary or unrestrained exercise of power, despotic abuse of authority. It's also a state ruled by a tyrant or absolute ruler. It's uh, oppressive or unjustly severe government control on the part of any ruler. And a tyrant is a sovereign or other ruler who uses power oppressively or unjustly. So any person in a position of authority who exercises power oppressively or despotically. Okay. So, in Jungian psychology, a tyrant is the active shadow side of the king-ruler archetype. Now, the king-ruler archetype is essentially a leader who brings order and structure to his family and society. So he is a he or she is a peaceful ruler who is focused on growth rather than control essentially. And I think in our society we've been longing for a good ruler to come to come around and properly manage society not for the good of him or herself, but for the good of everybody. What do you think? I think it's certainly a temptation that a lot of people can find themselves in, where you want to say, well, it'd be really nice if we could just have somebody tell us what to do, but I think the much more difficult choice is figuring out what to do for ourselves. So I would find myself firmly in the camp of those who think that we don't really need any rulers whatsoever, but that temptation, it does make a pretty compelling case, I gotta say. Well, that's a good point. The thing with the the um the king archetype is that it's supposed to inspire other people to develop the king archetype within themselves so mm. they can help save themselves and if we project our decide our desire on a savior who's just going to solve all our problems that's not the point so. yeah and i and i can see where that would be the uh the shadow side of that where people i guess absolve themselves of their own personal responsibility and Put that on someone else to do mm -hmm. it to do it for them and, and i think from there we can lead ourselves down a pretty tyrannical path and that's sort of what we're trying to avoid here right absolutely and you know the tyrants the thing with that is that they act very unconsciously mm. so they don't care about the damage that they're doing to their children or their employees or whatever else right they will exercise their power for the sake of power and usually for their own personal gain. Mm -hmm. So this is why it's important to uh, get that distinction between the positive and negative ruler. Oh yeah, and definitely. I can, I can see the uh, there's a positive side to effective leadership, and that's not really what we're talking about in this case. Tyranny, it's more of a corruption of leadership, I'd say. And if people crave that absolvement of responsibility this is sort of how we lead ourselves down the path of tyranny so mm -hmm. so what uh, what else can we say about tyranny here tim so in plato's republic 
According to Socrates, the tyrannical man is a man ruled by his lawless desires. Lawless desires draw men toward all sorts of ghastly, shameless, criminal things. This tyrant lives for feasts, revelries, luxuries, and girlfriends. He spends so much money that he soon runs through all he has and needs to begin borrowing. So who does this sound like? Sounds a little like government to me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Then, when no one will lend him any more, he resorts to deceit and force. Or, you know, printing money, but anyway. That too? That, that's sort of the same thing, okay. We see him running the whole gamut of typically unjust acts and his insatiable need to quench his erotic lusts. First, he tries to get money out of his parents in all sorts of awful ways. Then he starts breaking into houses, robbing temples, and finally committing murders. Hmm. He has become, while awake, what he used to be only while asleep, he is living a nightmare. Erotic love drives this nightmare. Keeping him lost in a complete anarchy and lawlessness, he will dare to do anything to keep feeding the desires that erotic love produces. Soon he cannot trust anyone, and he has no friends. The most decent parts of his soul are enslaved to the most vicious part, and so his entire soul is full of disorder and regret, and is least free to do what it really wants. He is continually poor and unsatisfied, and he lives in fear. Sounds like pretty pure chaos as far as I'm concerned, and a really good explanation of how it is that power can corrupt people, uh, and how absolute power obviously corrupts absolutely, and, and this is one of those temptations that I think it's important for all of us to avoid having power over other people because your your soul does kind of pay a price for that at the end of the day right yeah it's like that classic spider-man quote that uncle ben says with great power comes great responsibility and, and oh yeah by the way a whole bunch of through that yeah and a whole bunch of corruption of your soul too so yeah. uh, maybe maybe try to stay away from all that extra power right yeah yeah and it just goes to show that there is a small minority of people who can likely manage it properly mm -hmm. in a just way yeah and i mean I, I know i'm definitely not one of those people and i would definitely not want to try that either because uh, you don't really find out if you are someone who can handle that kind of power until it's already too late so it might be best to just avoid it altogether yeah i'll admit like that level of power is scary yeah for sure no kidding i mean i mean if if you don't really have a very well incorporated shadow i can definitely see how you might be like man you know what if i was in charge i would bring about the the goddamn utopia and, exactly. and yeah that's that's a pretty tempting thought but you know maybe no maybe no maybe you'd be the one that would bring about the uh the chaos and complete destruction of everything you know and love hold and hold dear right because that seems to be the much more likely outcome of having this amount of power yeah i think the healthy thing would be to back away if you don't think you can handle it but mm -hmm. maybe you can prepare yourself later on if that opportunity arises so um what we've realized is that tyrants hate transparency because it reveals their abuse and thus their flaws, motivations, and intentions, and thus a loss of their power since they maintain power through lies and control. Mm -hmm. So most of the following information in this next segment is derived from a great book called COVID-19, The Politics of a Pandemic Moral Panic by Barry Cooper and Marco Navarro Gini. Right, so direct all of your ire and hatred in their direction, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is just an aside, but it's interesting to note that corona means crown, or the top of the head. So even though its name, its name is head virus, 
this may have some psychological implications, depending on how, how you interpret it, of course. Yeah, the, the crown virus, and, and somehow we're not living in a simulation, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. So let's start off with a little bit of a definition of what exactly is a moral panic. So this term was developed in 1972 by sociologist Stanley Cohen based on his PhD dissertation at the London School of Economics. The focus of any moral panic is whether an issue is distorted and exaggerated in such a way to produce an obvious overreaction on the part of social and political authority. There are four stages of a moral panic. One is an event or person is defined as a threat, perhaps only a vague threat to existing values, traditions, and interests. Second, the event is simplified and presented in the to the masses and now in the mass media and now social media in a stereotypical way third moral barricades are manned by editors politicians experts and other right thinking people and socially authorized knowers fourth the ways of coping with the disturbance are developed and eventually five the public profile of the disturbance event individual etc declines and is forgotten or is retained as a memory and a diffuse or potential threat yeah, that, that's a pretty uh, telling example of what we seem to be going through at the moment. And uh, again, it's like, you know, if you disagree with the narrative, you obviously just want to kill grandma. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, we were seeing people taking this moral high ground that if you don't do X, Y, and Z, then obviously you're a horrible person. Um, and it's it gives a certain satisfaction to the individual that you know they're doing the right thing but the problem with an intense focus on morality is that it negates reality yeah and it's almost and as if uh now fear has just become its own virtue where it's like man i'm afraid but because i'm afraid i can now be better than everybody it's like <laughs> oh no that isn't that such a convenient answer exactly and this leads to our next point Cohen, the creator of the term called the aftermath of folk devil, and the chief emotion associated with a moral panic is fear. Yeah. And that's what we've seen run rampant throughout this whole thing. Yeah, the more the more scared you are, the better a person you are. It's like, oh, that's that's clever. <laughs> and that's the thing. Like, I'll admit, when this thing started, I was pretty freaked out. Yeah. And I thought, you know, um, society was essentially going to collapse we were going to lose our food shortage all this other crazy doomsday scenarios would happen mm -hmm. now at that time i'll admit i was depressed before this happened so i think you can understand why um, those exaggerations would happen right. but as i um essentially started learning more talking to my friends and just trying to understand what the hell is going on here i realized that maybe that fear isn't isn't as necessary and it was actually holding me back in some ways mm -hmm. so a key component of a moral panic are four sets of agents so the media plays a major role because they are the source of exaggeration and simplification. Prediction of dire consequences if nothing is done and the symbolization of both the vicious disturbance and the harmless agents who will restore order. The second group are the moral entrepreneurs who are backed by a third who constitute a culture of social control. This group is comprised of the courts, police, politicians, and others who are 
sensitized to the evidence of a disruption, and know what to do. Ooh. Furthermore, what they do is justified as a response to a fourth group of agents symbolized as public opinions, which in turn has been shaped into a moral panic by three smaller groups. So keep these ideas in mind as we will return to them later on. Hmm. So I think it's important to remember that viruses are older than humanity and have been a part of human life since the genesis of humanity. Homo erectus got sick from viruses, as did his predecessors and successors. Sometimes viral infections prove to be fatal. Sometimes the infections diminish and our bodies naturally learn how to deal with them. And I know viruses are, are kind of a weird concept for a lot of people. I know there's been, you know, some poo-pooing of the idea of virology even as a concept because they sort of exist in this weird, not really life, but not really unlife kind of space where they're they're basically just programming in a sense mm. where they can't actually exist on their own they actually require a host in order to reproduce so you yeah. could say well without people there wouldn't actually be viruses and it's like okay yeah that's actually true but that leads us down a much worse path than we'd probably get with viruses so let's maybe not do that but uh yeah viruses do require a host so when uh when they actually get into people's system and they're able to reproduce, they can produce some pretty nasty side effects. And nobody here would be saying that the symptoms that are associated with COVID-19 are completely trivial. There are a lot of people that have had some fairly serious mm -hmm. side effects to do with that, but this is a completely separate argument from the idea of social policy, because one of the things that really annoys me, and this has been pissing me off a lot recently, mm -hmm. where people that have no idea how the scientific method actually works start going like, well, just trust the science. The science says that we have to do things this way. And it's like, no, you idiot. The scientific method doesn't actually make any prescriptions on, on policy because they're mm -hmm. necessarily nested within a value hierarchy, which we'll get into a little bit later. But the idea that science is simply going to tell you what to do is is basically just dogma and it's being used to control you. So let's let's... Maybe move on, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Sure. So, <clears throat> next up, I think it's really important that we overview the emergence of the COVID-19 controversies, and there's a lot here. So, there is mutual agreement that individuals with strange flu-like illnesses were seen in China as early as August 2019. Nothing was confirmed until a 70-year-old man with Alzheimer's disease was diagnosed in late December 2019 in Wuhan, China. These symptoms of this first patient presented around December 1st. But the narrative breakdown of the origins of the coronavirus began to happen after the novel coronavirus traveled from an animal to a human being, also known as zoonotonic transmission. Oh, the old zoonotic transmission where it's just magically going from animals to people. Yeah, a bat or a pangolin or... Uh, yeah, or, or something like that. And all of a sudden, 14 months later, when the WHO gets in there to investigate it... Finally. Finally. It's like, oh, thanks for a little over a year later, you're finally at the scene of the crime to figure out what's going on. And the only conclusion you can come up with was, guys, this was definitely not the Chinese Communist Party that did this. 100%, yeah. that's the only thing we can say. It's like, okay, that's a little... Yeah, and we'll see massive amounts of denial and suppression coming up. Yeah. So, the Wuhan Institute of Virology was built by a contractor for the People's Liberation Army, a.k.a. the Chinese Communist Party. There is the possibility that the virus may have escaped into the human population that frequented the nearby wet market. The reason for this is because despite the Chinese government certifying the lab as the top level of biosafety of four, 
In 2017, American scientists discovered in 2018 that the lab personnel did not follow or practice level 4 security protocols, but something more like level 2 safety. Yeah, as in like, well, maybe we can't make a whole lot of money off of these old testing subjects, so maybe we'll go sell them to that that wet lab there, uh, the wet market just, just down the road there, because make a few bucks. It's like, yeah, maybe. That's, that's one of the theories I've heard. I mean, obviously, there's zero way of confirming absolutely any theory at this point. Yeah. Because, you know, the first thing that the CPP did was just go in there and just sanitize the entire place. You know, yeah. May, maybe for sanitation reasons, but also maybe to prevent any further, I guess, unorthodox narratives from emerging after the fact based on any fact. But thankfully, there are some facts we can look at that really illuminate the um, elements of this whole Well, fantastic. Let, let's dive right into what a few of those might be. So, on February 6, 2020, two researchers from the South China University of Technology, Zhao Batou and Lei Jiao, published a paper claiming that the killer virus probably originated from a laboratory in Wuhan. The paper was soon retracted, and the authors said their conclusions were, quote, premature. Research within China, against the accepted account, would, under normal circumstances, quickly disappear, and whether that happened in this last case is unknown. Well, I remember this about a year ago, where they were starting to talk about this, and then the competing narrative that came out was, well, actually, it was from this population of bats, but they're like 900 kilometers away in a cave, and somehow they made it all the way into this, this wet market. It's like... That that seems a little bit less convincing that the you know that was the case rather than say that bio lab the only one a level four bio lab in China that was around the corner from this market yeah. wherever <laughs> yeah and I remember you telling me this in late January I think yeah yeah and... it's, it's just like the, the competing narrative is just it's so obscure like it's so stupid yeah that it's like why even mention it why not just say we don't know then I might be like, oh, yeah. okay, well, I don't really know either. Well, this is the arrogance of tyranny. A little bit, yeah. I think. Well, you're, you're all so stupid, you'll believe it. Is sort of the attitude, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. We're the all-knowing ones. Yep. Um, okay, yeah. In April 2020, Luc-Antoine Montagnier, who received a Nobel Prize for his discovery of HIV-AIDS virus in 20, 2008, also argued that SARS-CoV-2 was made in a lab because... He said it was based on the HIV virus being used as a template. He cited the work of Prashant Pradhan and colleagues of the Kaduma School of Biological Sciences in New Delhi. Both Mantanye and Pradhan were dismissed as being, quote, conspiracy theorists. Oh, lovely. I love that. A term that has been used against critics of the mainstream narrative. Yeah, I mean, at this point, like, honestly, in 2021, if, like, the idea that the label of conspiracy theorist can really still be applied to anybody it's it's a little ridiculous you know mm -hmm. any, any and i like that the idea that it's like anybody that criticizes the mainstream narrative will now just be labeled a conspiracy theorist and it's kind of a way of poisoning the well against people rather than actually having to counter any of the arguments yeah. they make right? well the funny thing is they're not really interested in dialogue someone who labels someone as a conspiracy theorist won't really go too far to explain it mm -hmm. or give the other side a chance, really, to, you know, explain yeah. their side. That's yeah. what I've, you know, observed. Yeah, obviously, it's like if somebody is labeling you a conspiracy theorist, it's like, well, if they're obviously, just a conspiracy yeah, theorist... you're just a lunatic. Yeah, you should be able to come up with a pretty easy counter-argument because they're just a stupid conspiracy theorist. <laughs> like, why, why would that be so hard to do? But, you know, it's just more yeah. of a way of 
poisoning the well yeah. against, and she would make sure yeah. to remove any support you might happen to have yeah, at the time. It's right? more gaslighting, which yeah. is another tyrannical, sociopathic tactic. Mm -hmm. So in mid-September, the controversy reemerged when the New York Post reported that a Chinese virologist, Li Mengyan, had published a, a report showing that SARS-CoV-2 displayed biological characteristics that are inconsistent with naturally occurring zoonotic virus. Li Meng had worked at the Hong Kong School of Public Health, which is associated with both the WHO and PRC, People's Republic of China, yeah. until April 2020. She said she fled because she feared for her safety and implied her fear was connected to work. She had, in December 2019, um, in human to human transmission to the virus, um, the Hong Kong School of Public Health denied her claim to have conducted research on human-to-human -human transmission. In addition, they wiped her work from Chinese databases. Which is obviously what you would do if you had a reasonable counter-argument or supporting evidence to support some sort of counter-narrative, mm -hmm. right? It's like, well, th the first thing we're going to do before we address your claims is just delete all of your evidence. Because that, that's what a reasonable, rational argument would be, right? That's it's very like, scientific. Very scientific. <laughs> Definitely just delete the data first, come up with an argument second. At least this is how science works under communism, and I think this is sort of part of the underlying narrative that we do not want to overstate, is that when you involve communism in science, the narrative will come first, the science will come second. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mix up of priorities, eh? Oh yeah, no kidding. So, Li Meng's argument was simply that SARS-CoV-2 is a laboratory-enhanced virus and product of gain-of-function research. It could have been created easily using available materials and well-documented techniques and relatively quickly in six months. Her concluding recommendation was that Wuhan Institute of Virology should be investigated thoroughly and independently. Well, we wouldn't, wouldn't want any of that. Wouldn't want any of that independent and thorough investigation. Oh, God, no. No, no, definitely wouldn't want that. That might counteract the narrative, right? And, of course, here's where the thought police come in. Mm -hmm. Within a week, her Twitter account was suspended because <laughs> the social media company said she violated, quote, Twitter rules <laughs> of course. by publicizing her own work. Yeah. Second, the Lancet COVID-19 Commission stated, along with the number of ex-catheter remarks on political and social issues, that research into the origins of SARS-CoV-2 would proceed expeditiously, scientifically, objectively, unhindered by geopolitical agenda and misinformation. Yeah, and, and I think Tim Poole talked about this recently, where the, the difference between misinformation and disinformation. So disinformation would be information that's, I guess, especially created to push a narrative of a foreign enemy, whereas mm -hmm. misinformation is just shit you disagree with. Okay. Right? But then when you kind of blend the two of these things together, you can say, well, anyone who believes misinformation is just some conspiracy theorist lunatic that, yeah. we, that we shouldn't obviously have anything to do with. And we know Facebook is successfully clamping down on of misinformation course. claims. Yeah, because, of, of course, that has no political agenda either, right? And, you nope. know, we all know that the blue check marks are the, the epitome of truth. You know, and, and anything that they say and then the fact checkers say are obviously what we should believe. You know, mm -hmm. you, you don't want to waste any time thinking for yourself, people. That that's yeah. that's racist. See, their their idea is people can't know anything. We're just a bunch of idiots, and we should be bubble wrapped plebs for our too. own safety. Plebs. Yeah, <laughs> that's the proper term. serfs, right? Yeah, we, we are peasants. Or slaves. Yeah, we're peasants to these people. So yeah. obviously, you don't want to. 
don't want to challenge that narrative, otherwise you just reveal how much of a peasant you really are, right, Tim? Exactly. All right. So in regards to the very first cases of COVID-19, in the third week of December 2019, doctors in Wuhan observed, quote, a cluster of pneumonia cases with an unknown cause. Mm. By Christmas, two medical staff were suspected of having contracted viral pneumonia and were quarantined, as written in the New York Post on February 7, 2020. On December 30th, 2019, Dr. Li Wenlang and sorry if I mispronounced that, informed a group of other doctors in Wuhan about an outbreak of an illness resembling SARS and urged them to take protective measures, one may conclude that the evidence for human-to-human transmission was growing. Well, we wouldn't want to disagree with that narrative, right, Tim? You know, that... uh, Not at all. We might end up getting disappeared for something like that. Mm Mm-hmm. So, the next day, the Wuhan Municipal Health Commission announced that it had, quote, not found any obvious... Obvious, Jesus Christ. Human-to-human transmission and medical staff infection. So, frontline doctors in Wuhan thought otherwise. (laughs) Fools. <laughs> and two were suspected of having contracted the virus. On New Year's Day, the Wuhan public security picked up Lee and accused him of spreading rumors. What a bastard, eh, Tim? Spreading rumors mm-hmm. against the CPP. More misinformation. So much misinformation, I can't even believe it. So, Lee acknowledges his errors and promised not to commit any more additional unlawful acts. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be spreading any of that goddamn misinformation, eh, Tim? <laughs> Jeez, what a son of a bitch spreading all that misinformation it's dangerous. That, goes, that goes against the narrative. Yeah, he's gonna get people killed by, <laughs> by, telling, by telling against the narrative. Goddamn. Seven others were also arrested, but knowledge of what happened to them in custody is held by the PSB. Oh, oh, okay, well, I'm, sh- I'm sure they're fine. I'm sure they're yeah. they're off on some island sipping on a fucking mai tai. <laughs> they're living it up, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, just just living it up. I'm sure they're 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 just fine. They're they're totally not in a ditch somewhere, you guys. Uh, also, on New Year's Day, the Hebei Province Health Commission, which included the city of Wuhan, ordered a genomics company, which had tested several samples of this virus, to destroy any remaining samples and end testing. Because, uh, you know, they were told to stop providing results of their tests to the Wuhan hospitals. You wouldn't want any hospitals having evidence. That's bad. No. That's, that's bad. Not at all. You now, here's what? the kicker. According to the New York Times, on January 4th, 2020, somehow 175,000 people left Wuhan that day. Well, it was Chinese New Year. You can't <laughs> obviously stop people from traveling. That would be racist, you goddamn Tim. <laughs> God, yeah. So, what was I thinking? Obviously, yeah, you know, it's it's the new year. You people have to obviously, you know, move around. It's it's a New what, Year's resolution. It's what you do on New Year's. You move on a train from. Pla- well, I, I guess their New Year's is a little different from our years. We just go to some stupid place and watch a ball drop. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm sure you know New Year's would be really sweet if we could just sit on a train for eight hours and just go some other place to celebrate New Year's. I don't know. I don't know a thing about China. I really <laughs> kind of would admit. Uh, meanwhile, in Wuhan, evidence of human-to-human transmission increased. But on January third, the National Health Commission of China ordered labs not to publish any further information related to the new disease and to destroy or surrender. I love that wording. <laughs> to the commission, any remaining samples of the virus in their possession. So why would they want to do that? Well, you got to surrender to the goddamn CPP, Tim. Uh... Otherwise, you're uh, misinformation, deaths to other people. <laughs> conspiracy you, theorists. Y- you're a conspiracy theorist <laughs> that wants to co-grandma. This is just 
how it works, okay? Uh, on November, oh, sorry, January 8th, WHO issued a statement that reiterated the remark made a week earlier that several cases of pneumonia had been diagnosed in Wuhan from an unknown cause. Very cryptic, eh, Tim? The WHO then praised China for having so quickly diagnosed and managed the outbreak. <laughs> I remember this. Uh, WHO does not recommend any specific measures for travelers. Oh, Jesus. They didn't even hear about the hotels that far back in the past, eh, Tim? Mm-hmm. No. Oh, if they only knew about our expensive $2,000 hotels for people quarantining now. Those delicious ham sandwiches. Oh, look at those ham sandwiches, Tim. They... The top of a tomato. Oh, top of a tomato. What the hell? You... I'm going to tell you people right now, nowhere outside of a communist regime will you ever see the top of a fucking tomato in a sandwich. <laughs> Oh, man. So the WHO advises against any application of any travel or trade restrictions on China because of the information currently available. Love that wording. On January 10th, New York Times, a former newspaper, again quoted the Wuhan City Health Commission that there is no evidence that the virus can spread among humans. Holy shit. This is only a year later and I'm already reading this like jaw dropped like, holy fuck, we used to believe this crap. Yeah. That same day, Lee began coughing and developed a fever after having unknowingly treated a patient with the virus a few days before. He was hospitalized on January 6th and died three weeks later. In this part of the timeline is where Canada gets involved. So around January 12, 2020, a Toronto software company called Blue Dot used a combination of artificial intelligence plus a capacity to scan thousands of news articles in 65 languages. On New Year's Day, Blue Dot informed its clients, one of which was the government of Canada, that a new and unidentified illness had appeared in Wuhan. Two weeks later, they published a paper integrating these health data with airline flight data to predict where the virus was likely to show up next. It wouldn't be outrageous to consider that if a commercial operation such as Blue Dot could accurately detect the initial outbreak and accurately predict its spread, then government intelligence agencies, especially in the United States, would have at least the same capability. Well, you would think that. And it takes me back, and I know this might be a little bit of a tangent, but I think it was uh, Target or one of these uh retail merchants they started getting in a lot of shit for sending people information on new child products mm. when they knew they would be pregnant based on their purchase history mm. the free market's ability to predict things is so much greater than the government's that they were able to start getting in there in trouble themselves for accusing people of being pregnant who were 100 percent of the time actually pregnant they got that advanced tech oh yeah yeah you know why because they actually have a financial incentive to use it that makes sense. Anyway. So apparently the China authorities thought differently. The Wuhan City Health Commission continued to report in early January that no medical staff had been infected and, quote, no clear evidence of human-to-human -human transmission had been found. On January 14th, five weeks after the evidence of human-to-human -human transmission first appeared in Wuhan, the WHO repeated the Wuhan City Health Commission finding quote unquote that same day the canadian public health agency said the risk in canada was quote unquote low and i remember this like a year ago literally a year yeah. ago to this day they were saying like oh okay look at all these cases skyrocketing everywhere else in the world except ground zero just to let you know 
I remember going to the Aurora Public Library, and there's a Chinese woman there who um, has like um, a side store selling like baked goods and stuff, and okay. she had a mask on, and uh, I wasn't really sure what to make of that, but that was back in November, so I just thought it was interesting to, you know, bring up that. She knew ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. So on January 17th, the Americans announced that travelers from Wuhan would have to undergo screening for symptoms associated with COVID-19. Three days later, Theresa Tam, Canada's chief public health officer, said that, quote, out of an abundance of precaution, end quote, travelers from, quote, virus-infected areas would be asked to report any flu-like symptoms. On January 23rd, the first Canadian patient with COVID-19 was admitted to Sunnybrook Hospital Emergency Department in Toronto. A week later, Tina Nemesgonski, president of the Public Health Agency of Canada, told a parliamentary health committee that the system is working as expected. Tam reiterated that voluntary self-isolation for symptomatic travelers was all that was needed in Canada and, quote, there is no evidence, end quote, that is necessary to quarantine asymptomatic persons arriving from, quote, virus-infected areas, end quote. She did not mention China. Well, you wouldn't want to mention China, the ground zero for where, you know, the last six outbreaks have occurred, including SARS and MERS and all these other, even the Spanish flu, to be honest with you, originated over in China. But you wouldn't want to call it that because that would be racist. Right, and, and we can't be racist when it comes to facts, because facts are racist, and you're a racist. Can't be racist. No, no, you, you don't, definitely don't want to do that. And I mean, I, it's, it's hilarious to me that we're going from that to now we're literally creating internment camps in hotels, but because they're hotels, we can just call them hotels. It's like, well, you know what, they, they, got, you know, they got their own room, they had access to a crappy pool, a shitty gym. Maybe some overpriced bed and breakfast kind of nonsense in the morning. Yeah, so you're saying because they call it a hotel, it's actually a hotel. Right. It's a concentration hotel, Tim, to help people concentrate. Ah, okay. Right. I mean, it's not like Canada has a history of internment hotels. It's just, they were all one floor, which makes it bad. And these are multiple floors, so they're good. Okay, okay. Thank you for Thank God enlightening for our, me. Thank God for our government schools, eh, Tim? We got it all, <laughs> got it all figured out, eh? Okay. So... Um, on, okay, on January 22nd, the Director General of the WHO, Tedros Ghebreyesus, again praised the Chi how the Chinese dealt with the outbreak. By then, millions of people left Wuhan. Traveling around China for the Lunar New Year celebrations and tra traveling abroad as well. An unknown but presumably significant number of them were carrying the virus. Bunch of mooners, eh, Tim? <laughs> Next day, the Chinese authorities began a quarantine lockdown of Wuhan. On January 30th, the WHO declared the COVID-19 outbreak a public health emergency of international concern. Six weeks later, the WHO declared that the outbreak constituted a pandemic. Six weeks, eh? God damn. I mean, it's not like they had any urgency with that, eh? I mean, I mean, how long does it really take someone to move around the world in six weeks? I mean, everyone's <laughs> traveling on ships, right? So mm. it, it takes six weeks to get... It's, yeah, not, it's not as if you could move half the world's population by plane or anything. It basically takes forever. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> so from December 2019 and possibly earlier, PRC officials knew what was happening in Wuhan. Namely, that a contagious virus was at large. 
Whether it came from a wet market or a more sinister source was secondary. Chinese authorities, quote, chose to cover up, obfuscate, and suppress the truth about COVID-19, end quote. Indeed, China lied in an aggressive, systematic, and pervasive fashion. According to Burton Bayer's, China lied to the WHO as well as the rest of the world. Right, and because we're talking about specifically the Chinese Communist Party, it'd probably be good to at least address the fact that we're not talking about all Chinese people here. Mm-hmm. It's not like all of the Chinese people said this. It's like, no, you fucking idiots. We're talking about the communists. We're not in China. making blanket, blanket statements. We're trying yeah. to make a specific point to a specific group. Yeah. And this, this is the Chinese Communist Party. Obviously, they're going to try to hold up the rest of their citizens as human shields, as they do in most cases. But we're talking about the CPP. So, from late January until mid-March, Canadian public health officials minimized the risks of COVID-19. Tam told members of the Parliamentary Health Committee on January 30 that infection by asymptomatic carriers of the virus was, quote, rare and unlikely, end quote. On February 5th, she told the committee that Chinese case reports had not yet been verified. Vancouver East NDP MP Jenny Kwan asked her if Canada had contacted Chinese officials directly. Tam replied that determining asymptomatic transmission is, quote, quite a difficult piece of epidemiology, end quote. She added that when people are showing symptoms, such as rapidly coughing, quote, that we believe is when this virus is transmitted, end quote. To state the obvious, Tam's response did not address Kwan's question. When does it ever? How convenient. Yeah. Additionally, if asymptomatic carriers were not a problem, it would have been preferable on common sense grounds alone to quarantine only those with symptoms. Not everyone. What an idea. Holy. Wow, as if, uh, you know, it's transmitted through coughing, but if you're not coughing, you're totally trying to kill grandma too, right? (laughs) Intentionally, obviously. That's the most logical conclusion. Obviously the most logical. The basic justification for the lockdown, in other words, had very weak medical support. The implications of the relative threat of asymptomatic carriers were not discussed for another dozen weeks. Yeah, a long time before we actually got around to that whole thing and decided that, well, anyone that might have it obviously wants to kill grandma and we gotta lock him in a goddamn hotel, otherwise we're gonna kill everybody. It's like, okay, well, when did we get to this point? You know, I mean, there's obviously a few steps that we had to go through to get there, but this is where we find ourselves now. So we're going to go more in depth with how Canada handled this in our next episode. But it's interesting to briefly note that um, the use of computer modeling in Great Britain was used to influence the decision to go for a full lockdown as opposed to quarantine. So essentially, there was um, this Ferguson model that was produced to um, influence the Prime Minister of, of the UK. And essentially, it was based on code that was at least 13 years old, which is considered ancient in the technological world. Also, it wasn't commented properly, and Ferguson himself... Um, stated that no one would be interested in analyzing this code and basically tried to keep people from actually analyzing it. So, Well, this is the way that computer modeling is conflated with the idea of the scientific method, where if we create a model 
That's obviously the same as incontrovertible proof. And this mm. is complete horseshit. Computer <laughs> modeling is not science. God damn it. And I hate this shit. The same arguments were used with climate change. And mm. they were and, and, and this is one of the things I, I would really like to stress. Science does not make public policy prescriptions. Those are nested within a hierarchy of values, which are subjective. Science will tell you everything about a field except how to walk through it. Yeah, it's meant to describe right. mainly, right? It's designed to create, I guess, valid predictions from observations. But what makes a prediction valid or more valuable than something else is subjective, right? It can tell you something is greater or less than, but that doesn't mean it's better or worse. Those are two different, different levels of analysis. You're talking about scientific versus philosophical. Yeah, it's meant to measure and describe objectively. Objectively, right? And so if you're going to try to uh, put in subjective values as to what something is worth or what is better or worse, you're moving outside of the realm of science. And unfortunately, I think this is something that's sort of been cut out of our education. Where we can just say, just, just trust the experts, guys. I swear to God, it's not dogma. It's just science. You know? Mm -hmm. and, it, and it really pisses me off because you'll hear people advocate for the most heinous kind of things all under the guise of science yeah or that they're a medical expert and you should listen to them no matter what oh yeah yeah just just trust the experts you guys no nobody knows better than them don't ask questions no don't think for yourself all right so next up let's talk a little bit about these godforsaken concentration hotels and we talked about isolation in our last episode but People are essentially being forced to quarantine and pay $2,000 or something like that, even if they don't have the symptoms. Oh, yeah, and in an interesting twist of fate, it's actually more than twice as cheap to just pay the fine for telling the police to go F themselves <laughs> than it is to actually go to one of these hotels and sit in there for three days. So what, the fine is something like 900 and something dollars if you just tell the police to go F off. Yeah. As opposed to going to the hotel and spending $2,000 to eat there. Crappy tomato top sandwiches. People are essentially being forced against their will. And what's fascinating is that they're claiming that um, people are not allowed to enter because of construction. Even though there's no visible signs of construction. Oh, that's weird. You can see this on Rebel News. They've covered this for weeks and weeks. And just how shady this bullshit is. Hmm. So. Anyways, you were actually down there, weren't you? You actually went to like what was it, Kensington Market or something like that? Well, I went to I went to downtown Kensington Market. Yep, for and whatever reason, we were um, <laughs> we were observing the anti-lockdown protest, nice. and we were we finally caught up to them, and we came up to Kensington Market, and the police uh, detained a woman with a megaphone who was, you know, it, expressing how, you know, we're in communist Canada, essentially, and other important truths. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, she was unlawfully detained. And I have video proof of this. Yeah, and I remember seeing The kicker that. of this is that one of the cops didn't have a mask that was, like, within a foot of her. And then he puts it on afterwards. <laughs> As he's walking away from it, it's like, oh crap, the sergeant's coming. Better put on this fucking mask. So, yeah. 
I really encourage you guys to take a look at the video footage of these anti-lock protests and people that are being unlawfully detained because it's pretty scary. And this is a tyrannical actions. This is an abuse of power. Yeah, Why 100%. are there 50 cops in Queens Park to basically intercept a perfectly peaceful protest? Well, because they're obviously they're going against the narrative, and we wouldn't want anyone going against the narrative to kill Grandma with a goddamn megaphone, right, Tim? But they can't explain that. They, yeah. Apparently, they can't answer any questions that sit, uh, innocent citizens ask. Well, you, you wouldn't want to answer any questions that might put you out of a job. Yeah, or reveal their corruption. Or, yeah, you know, reveal the corruption. And you know what? I wouldn't even go that far. I would just say, hey, listen, I got a paycheck coming in two weeks. I got a mortgage to pay, so get under the boot. I get it. We're all in survival mode. Yeah. And, and you know what? I would put uh, a lot of our law enforcement officers firmly in that camp, where it's like, listen, the powers that be are telling us that we got to do this, and I'm just going to use that as a rationalization, because, you know, the greater good and just following the orders has never been used, ever, to justify some of the most heinous crimes against people in human history. Yeah, we're talking about moral culpability, following orders, right. just saying... Just I was go, told to. I was told to do it, so I, I so I did it, you guys. It's like, yeah. uh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, never mind. That that's fine then. Yeah, as long as no somebody, problem. as long as somebody told you to do it, then it doesn't matter what you do. <laughs> that's obviously fine. <laughs> obviously, <laughs> as no, long as there's a person higher up telling you to right. do this, what does it matter what the consequences are? Listen, he had a lab coat and a clipboard, <laughs> you guys. Obviously, do you, you want to kill grandma? Do you want to kill grandma right now, you guys? <sighs> obviously, jeez. And I just keep forgetting that, like, no, I'm such an asshole. Obviously you're an asshole, Tim, obviously, if, if you're not going along with the narrative. God! <laughs> anyway. So, you know, let's get one thing straight. I don't think all police are bad. No. In fact, society needs guardians to serve and protect. Yeah, we need those sheepdogs, right? But at the end <laughs> of the day, there's far too many sheep for those sheepdogs to guard. So it's a bit of a problem. A little bit of a problem, right? And a lot of these people that got involved, our fellow citizens that got involved, deciding to put their lives on the line, quite literally, to protect us, are now being co-opted to follow this narrative. See, there. the thing is, they are they only care about our safety. No. So they'll tackle us in order to prove that point. Obviously, yeah, without a mask is, you know, our safety and whatnot, even though they're arresting us for not wearing a mask. And, you know, the hypocrisy yeah. is always there. But I think a lot of these people that signed up to do this job, and to be honest, I was almost one of them. Uh, I've gotten into this because they wanted to help people. Yeah. They wanted to solve complex problems in very stressful situations. And that's a noble... Yeah. But listen, what, what better way to get a hold of society than take those guardians and co-opt them for your own political ends? Uh-huh. Right? Right. So we're not blaming the cops here. I mean, we do hold them morally culpable for the actions they choose to take. However, I don't think they're the ones creating, or they're not the ones writing the playbook. Right. Right? Exactly. So, so you That's know, let, let, let's, let's just, let's just kind of put that in a bit of perspective here. They're not, they're not out there trying to screw anyone over. They're just following orders. And they might be absolving themselves morally of what it is that they swore to protect. But, uh... Yeah, I guess just take it for what it is. Yeah, but the problem is, uh, who's being held accountable? Is anybody? 
Well, you, you don't want to hold anyone accountable. That would be racist, sexist, homophobic, and transphobic, right. and bigoted That's all like at the same six time. Infractions you, you don't want to have all those Jesus. infractions. That's firing squad territory, Tim. Right. I'm right. telling you, you don't want to. You don't want to be doing I'd any of that. Better just say nothing and yeah, lower so, my head. So, so the alternative to the statist perspective would be something that takes us back to the King James version of the Bible, and I and I know I don't really necessarily want to go here with everybody because you guys are probably more of the atheist camp, and I was right there with you until I saw the goddamn alternatives. And here's what it reads. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam in thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. And I love this Kim, this King James language, the way it kind of dresses it up all Old English style. <laughs> I love that shit. <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> Sounds Basically, way more don't. Intense, yeah. yeah, way more intense. Just, just don't be a hypocrite. If you're gonna accuse somebody of doing something that you yourself are doing, you bet. You best check yourself before you wreck yourself. Yeah, it's kind of like that Nietzsche idea. If, um, if you're gonna go about fighting monsters, be careful not to become one in the process. Yeah, if you're gonna stare into that abyss, be aware that that abyss is staring back into you. You know, and you're gonna become the very thing that you hate. So, for a lot of these cops that have decided that, you know, I hate evil, I want to fight back against it, it's like, well, you better make sure that you don't become evil yourself. Mm. And I'm sure a lot of them have realized that that's a much easier alternative than questioning the narrative that might threaten their pension. But, this is what we pay them for, right? Protect us from evil. So, at the end of the day, what does this whole phenomenon of COVID-19 mean? Well, we're still trying to figure it out figure that out but i mean if you're paying attention at all we're seeing a high level of unconsciousness and what i mean by that is people are automatically responding and reacting to various events or people that go against the narrative or someone who asks questions or stands up for something worthwhile and noble and you know we're seeing a um a big example of the collective shadow taking over people. And what I mean by that is that many people are scapegoating the um, worst attributes of themselves or the negative attributes that they don't want to see and they don't want to acknowledge in themselves, but pushing it out to a scapegoat. Well, it's a lot easier than dealing with it in yourself, right? It's like, you know, here's all the things I hate about myself, but they're all your fault. It's a lot easier than admitting you're wrong Way about something. Way easier. Way easier. So, yeah, yeah. Maybe avoid that a little bit, because you probably don't want to go down that path. Yeah, and it's like that young quote that uh, people don't have ideas, but ideas have people. Ideas have people. So what ideas have you? <laughs> you know, not not what ideas do you have, but what ideas currently have them have you in their possession? Right? Yeah. What what camp do you find yourself? What in? do they have a hold on? Right, right exactly. And I think more than ever, these are important questions of self examination mm -hmm. and analysis that should be answered. So, um, in my opinion, I would consider the main virus is a virus of the mind because mm -hmm. we are seeing an exponential growth in mental illness people's disorders are being ramped up to extreme um expressions and the, the, and the child suicides 
Yeah. Holy and shit. Teens. Yeah, like the nine-year-olds killing themselves and shit. It's like... Yeah, did you know domestic violence was yeah, up by 90%? Through the roof! Right? It's like, like, how many lives must we save to save lives? I don't think our government took these unintended no. consequences into... No, uh, no, but I mean, to, to, to expect the government to take those kind of unintended consequences, like, well, you know... I mean, the lockdowns are just two weeks to flatten the curve, you, you selfish son of a bitch. Don't you want to not kill grandma? It's like, okay, well, how many child suicides is it going to be worth to prevent? Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, how many children is it worth having them kill themselves in order for you to feel safe? I think that's yeah. a much more pertinent question than people that are obviously in their late 80s dying of a virus that, you know, they're already past their goddamn warranty period. Right? Exactly. And as callous as that might sound... I don't give a shit relative to the children that are killing themselves because they can't see their friends, they can't go to school, they can't do anything that used to make them feel like kids. They can't live. They can't live at all. All of a sudden because we have to feel safe. It's like, no, fuck that. We gotta broad stroke everybody. everybody. Not just a certain population that can be quarantined. It applies to everybody for- That level of nuance is racist. <laughs> don't be a dick. Alright. So... You know, there's just more division between ourselves, more divide and conquer tactics, more us versus them tribalism. That's a good point, and I think that us versus them stuff, we're going to talk a little bit later when we discuss fifth generational warfare. But anyway. So, we're seeing virtue signaling through shaming and condemning others who question the mainstream narrative and other consistencies of this whole problem, you know, and... um you know, if you want, you could take a Freudian perspective of this and, um, you know, you got his theory was all about the id, ego, superego. So the superego was essentially your conscience, which was um, which is developed as we grow up as children and teens. It's our moral kind of compass in a way of what our parents, um, teachers and various authorities told us what is moral and what is not. Mm -hmm. So essentially what's going on. What I think is that a lot of people's superegos are being hijacked by the id. So the id is uh, driven by the pleasure principle. So it's trying to um, expel energy so it can gain some satisfaction. But the thing that's happening is that um, people are gaining satisfaction by having a, ha a high moral authority of the superego and gaining pleasure by doing things that they think are virtuous and correct. And part of that is shaming others. Yeah, this is, this is a little bit deep and weird, and I think it's probably good to clarify that it's, it's, it's a lot easier to get what you want if you can just hijack everybody else's morality to serve you. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's like, listen, I mean, I really like to feel like a, a self-righteous, important person, so in, instead of actually creating value or doing anything that might generate that sort of response i'll just make you feel like shit until you make me feel that way <laughs> yeah and this is how it bolsters people's low self-esteem and it's not like we haven't seen this before mm -hmm. what was it like one in one in every three people in nazi germany and soviet russia was a was a government informant so it's like wow. if you lived in a house of nine people three of them would be informing on you at any <laughs> given time and 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 i hate this you know, mm -hmm. like, I, I am this close to putting a sign on my front yard that just tells all my neighbors, gather as much as you want, I'm not going to say shit to the state. Go for it. I'm not going to do anything. I mean, mm. I'm not saying do it, I'm not saying don't do it, I'm just saying, I'm not going to rat you out. You're not a snitch. I'm not a snitch. 
and, and yeah, I hate to use that term too because that's got all sorts of loaded connotations too. But <laughs> yeah, that, that's sort of a point, right? It's, you know, do what you want to do, manage your own risk. I'm not going to rat you out for getting together with your family for Christmas or for Thanksgiving or Easter or whatever else. You just yeah. do, you do you. I'm not going to say anything. And I just, I would like to put that message out there because I think other people need to realize that this is the fear that is used to control us. Mm-hmm. The fear of your neighbors, the fear of your family, the fear of your friends. Somebody seeing you do something wrong. Something, yeah, exactly. Somebody seeing you going against the narrative, and then all of a sudden the hammer of the state comes down on you because this is the only way we can control people these days yeah. because I guess, you know, morality and ethics have been eroded to the point of, you know, this is all we can do. You know, you're not you're not following the rules. It's We're going to rat you out. It's a clever way to control behavior. 100% it is. Uh, maybe it's not that clever, but it's fucking effective it's so effective all right so why don't we take this on a little bit of a different tangent and talk a little bit about the generations of warfare now this is just going to be a brief overview about how this works and if you guys aren't familiar with how exactly warfare works throughout the years let's just run through it right now so the very first generation of warfare you'd have two mass armies of dudes just line up and just attack the shit out of each other Mass army versus mass army, stick each other with sticky things, and just just mess everybody up. Mass force on mass force. Now, what is the best way to counter this? This would be second generation warfare. So once we started running into rifled muskets, breech-loading weapons, machine guns, artillery fire, and barbed wire. Just concentrate people into one area and just blast the shit out of them. Mass force on mass force is best countered with mass force versus fixed position so you got a pillbox that none of that army can really defend or attack against you just wipe them all out right so what is the best i guess defense against a fixed position this is going to be third generation warfare focused on using late modern technologies derived uh leveraging speed stealth and surprise to bypass enemy lines and collapse their forces from the rear essentially this was a lick uh (laughs) was the end of linear warfare and tactical level with units seeking not to simply meet each other face-to-face, but to outmaneuver each other and to gain the greatest advantage. So this is a fixed position being countered by maneuver. So, Generation 1, mass force on mass force. Generation 2, mass force countered by a fixed position. Fixed position, then countered by maneuver. Now, if you've got enemies that have tanks, the ability to move anywhere they want, what is your next option? That's going to be the fourth generation of warfare as presented by Lind et al., it's characterized by a postmodern return to decentralized forms of warfare, blurring the lines between war and politics, combatants and civilians, due to nation-states' loss of their near-monopoly on combat forces, returning to models of conflict common to pre-modern times. So this is maneuver countered by insurgency. So we saw a lot of this with the war in the Middle East, where we would have insurgents embedded within civilian populations. So you couldn't just go in and wipe out civilian populations, because then you just create more insurgency. Obviously. Right? Mm. The best way to attack a superior military force is to embed yourself within the civilian population so they could not indiscriminately attack you. Right? Now, what is the best counter to insurgency? Tim? So now we're at fifth generation from the handbook of 5GW, which would be insurgency countered by counterinsurgency. Counterinsurgency! It's wow. so obvious! <laughs> Just counter the insurgency with counterinsurgency, right? 
So this is where things start to get pretty interesting. Psychological warfare for your perceptions. Mm. Fifth generational warfare strategies seek to problematize the insurgent's knowledge of who it fights and why the adversary must be resisted. There is little point in attacking an enemy directly if you can create so much confusion that the enemies simply attack each other. Mm. Strategically, fifth generational warfare must then alert how insurgents and the indigenous population perceive and anticipate the identities and intentions of counterinsurgents. Fifth generational warfare presents new observations that falsify the cognitive and cultural master frames that are deployed to rationalize mobilization of popular resistance. It succeeds by manipulating how insurgents and the indigenous population perceive their own identity in relation to each other. This new master frame imposes something a bit of safety, you know, creating a safe space in order to counteract the narrative of injustice and oppression. Safety over freedom, so to speak. When have we ever heard that before? <laughs> the great risk to the population in this case would be that of dependency. And a contemporary example would be that of Bosnia. You guys all remember that goddamn Bosnian conflict back then when, uh, you know, we were a little bit younger. And this, it started off as a sovereign state, but now it's actually ruled as a protectorate of the UN, and it lacks independent institutional and, therefore, security capacity. You know, Bosnia's screwed, man. They, they've submitted themselves to the UN, and now the UN's responsible for their security? God help them. Anyway... So, fourth-generational warfare, the one we talked about previously, it's all about provoking a heavy-handed response from a larger force by embedding insurgents within the population. And I guess for the sake of this example, you and I are now the insurgents, because we, you know, disagree with the government narrative. We're, we're the bad guys, we're the ISIS, we're the Al-Qaeda. Good to know. Yeah, yeah, it, it is good to know, because we want to know exactly where we stand with these idiots, mm -hmm. right? So, the fifth-generational warfare response is to win the battle of perception through hearts and minds. You know, we've heard mm. that before. And, unfortunately, this was something that used to be used to win the hearts and minds of the populations in other countries against the insurgents, but, you know, now that we're obviously the insurgents for whatever reason, th this is now being used against us. So... We see this in a modern Western context, not as an occupying force providing security, you know, food, water, the like, but more like the establishment powers convincing us that our oppression is for our own good. Any opposition to this narrative is framed as a threat to the greater good, quote-unquote. You just want to kill grandma, you son of a bitch, right? That's sort of how it is, right? Fifth-generational warfare principles were applied to the fight against Al-Qaeda in the Middle East, by showing the population the military could be a reliable ally in driving out these insurgents. Now, in a chilling juxtaposition, these same principles are being applied to arrest and prosecute business owners who, quote-unquote, threaten the safety of society by running their businesses. Those bastards. All oh, those sons of bitches running their business and providing value to other people. God, they just want to kill grandma! Oh, God! <laughs> Through one-sided media reports, selective manipulation of statistics, and casting those who report on their neighbors as good citizens, we are being manipulated into sacrificing our freedom and liberty in the name of the greater good. Once this freedom is given up in the name of safety, it is unlikely that we're going to regain either freedom or safety. So, what do we have in terms of solutions, Tim? Well, um... 
someone I've been following, uh, Colin Davis, he said that the solution to this tyranny is to practice transparency, which essentially means no lying. And I think we know that tyrants despise transparency. They despise the truth. Of course they, they don't do. value truth. Yeah, because the truth is a threat to their power. Exactly. So I think it's, it's quite valuable to practice it within ourselves start with ourselves maybe stop lying to ourselves yeah that's an idea that's a huge thing if you can't tell the truth to yourself and the people in your life just just cut out this crap about speaking truth to power at least start with yourself and the people around you first before you start going off and be like oh we're gonna speak truth to power it's like don't don't even waste your time get get yourself sorted out first yeah and that's and that's hard work but it's probably the most worthwhile or at least one of the most worthwhile things you can do currently 100 yeah and this ties in with doing shadow work on yourself like understanding what is like what are the negative things that about yourself that you're not really acknowledging or giving voice to and that may be taking hold of you and making you act in um disastrous ways that might be affecting your relationships or how you express anger for example like yeah. if you're if you're this type of person who's going to um displace your anger on people who don't deserve it it might be a time to take a look in the mirror yeah you know? and we talked a lot about about the shadow back in our episode on the shadow and essentially what we're talking about is incorporating those parts of yourself that were been repressed for years yeah, for whatever unconscious. reason. Yeah, bring them back up to the surface, process them, discard that which is not useful, and start incorporating that shit into yourself. These are likely things that you were told were, were bad right. when you grew up. 100%. But um, this this work, again, it's it's difficult, but it's possible to make the unconscious conscious and it's not only good for you but it's good for your partner your family your friends the people surrounding you in your community in general yeah and to say it is difficult might be to under <laughs> undersell the pain that you will yeah. have to go through to incorporate these parts of yourself like it's as if you're full of dead wood and you have to burn all that dead yeah. wood off that's not going to be a a pleasant process by any means and believe me it's going to be a lot more comfortable to just i don't know distract yourself with the various distractions that we have available to us it is to uh intoxicate ourselves or to in engage in all sorts of other self-serving narratives or shame people on social media way get easier. an endless arguments way easier if you guys are looking for the easy path go down that path that's going to be the easiest way to go but it's going to be the least productive and incorporating these least desirable aspects of yourself back into your consciousness that's going to be a painful process but it's going to be worth that pain it's yeah essentially taking a look at the speak speech the consequences of the speech and actions that you are currently doing right mm -hmm. and what i would totally promote is to educate yourself read books like covid19 the politics of a pandemic moral panic do some research and understand check out independent news sources such as the epic times and rebel news and in my opinion they're doing the real work yeah real like you know boots to the ground on the streets journalism journalism that 
other mainstream media outlets simply are ignoring or labeling as, you know, criticizing as whatever, oversimplifying. Yeah, and understand that, that thinking for yourself and doing your own research, these are learned skills. These are not inherent abilities that we're just born with by virtue of our own temperamental proclivities. You have to learn how to research. You have to discern how to figure out what is wheat and what is chaff and to be able to separate them effectively. And these are not things you're going to be reading, or sorry, I guess determining, just by following whatever you already believe. You know, yeah. sometimes sometimes the truth is a lot less comfortable than you'd like to admit. And looking at, at the facts and figuring out what is true, that's a tough, a tough proposition, to say the least. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a risk, and it, it takes courage to stand against the crowd who will likely shame. Yeah, it might cost you everything you hold dear. Mm -hmm. to follow the truth, which is one of the reasons why many people don't. Exactly. They'll label you as this or that, and obviously that's a tough thing to handle, but as you learn more, as you learn more about yourself, as you decide what principles you're going to follow, you can use that as strength to, um, to protect yourself. And in the end, it'll only help your self-confidence, too. And you know, I think it's vital to communicate and dialogue with others, figure out what are people thinking? What are their, you know, thoughts and feelings about what the hell is going on in our society here, mm -hmm. right? See what the general zeitgeist or the general opinions are and maybe see if you can you can question them or, you know, you know, get to the bottom of what's what's happening. So Lastly, I would encourage you to recover the sacred lost words that tyrants absolutely hate, which is no. No. No, not at all. And believe me, if it was just a matter of one crazy idiot deciding the fate of a million people, it doesn't actually happen. It's all the other people that agree to that. You know, it's all the other people that agree to rat out their neighbors, all the other people that agree to believe the lies and all of the people that choose to parrot those lies themselves, those tyrants wouldn't have shit if it wasn't for those people. Yeah, without thinking for a second what it, what it entails or what the consequences are. Or... Yeah, and, and oftentimes it's, it might just be something as simple as their own comfort that they're unwilling to give up. And yeah, I can, I can see that as, mm. as an argument that might, might have a lot of value for people. But what's the other option, yeah. right? What is the alternative? And believe me, the alternative is going to be far worse than a little bit of discomfort in the, the meantime, because we've seen this play out before, and we do not want to see it play out again. Short-term thinking isn't going to help us. No. We need to think years and years and years ahead. Yeah, what, what, kind of, what kind of world do you want to leave to future generations, and one that involves state lies and media manipulation? It's probably not going to be the best alternative. We've already lived through it. <laughs> you guys have seen it. We, we've grown up with it, so... There's so many things that happened in the last year, it's so hard to keep track of it. Yeah, and I mean, this stuff used to take 10 years to develop, but now it's happening every six months, yeah. so... it's an incredibly rapid pace, and we will cover more of what's happened in 2020 in our next episode. So thanks again for tuning into this episode of The Sorted Skeptics, and we'll see you guys next time. Take care.